0: Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians and Colossae in his letter, in chapter two, beginning in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In many respects here, Paul is now making explicit the whole concern he's had throughout his letter to the Colossians. He and Timothy are writing to these Christians. Uh, They probably around the year 59 to 61, Uh, he did not know them face to face. Um, But Paul thanked God for those Christians and their trust in the gospel promoted around the world. He prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding that they would walk worthy of the Lord, in Colossians 1, 3 through 12. Paul then established that God had made Christians sufficient to partake in the inheritance that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, to whom and through whom all things were made, that all things consist in him, that he was given preeminence in all things, that all the fullness dwells in Jesus, and all things in heaven and on earth reconciled to God through him. And we have seen uh, the end of this and what, why he's mentioning these things and insisting on these things. The Colossians had been alienated from God in Colossians 1, 20, and 29, but God has reconciled them to himself in Jesus, and they will continue as long as they remain grounded and steadfast in the gospel and its hope. And Paul is the minister of the gospel that is preached everywhere. And previously in chapter 2, Paul has told the Colossian Christians how much he agonizes and strives for them that they will be comforted, united in love to the riches of full understanding, uh, and that no one would be able to deceive them with persuasive rhetoric, and the, the kind of anchor, the hinge, or however you want to look at it, kind of connects that to what follows, uh, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, verses 6 and 7, just before the things that we have mentioned, um, and everything kind of flows from that, and now we're seeing exactly what Paul is meaning uh, the dangers of those who would plunder the Colossian Christians and so that's what Paul provides as the next exhortation there would be rooting ground in Jesus why well make sure no one takes you captive to take captive is to make spoil or plunder through philosophy or deceit according to the rudimentary elements of the world and not according to Christ Christ is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and he is above every principality and power, and in him the Colossians are made full. Uh, plunder is a Greek word, sulagogon, which is, means to carry off booty. It's used here only in the New Testament. And if you hear sulagogon, sunagogon, sounds similar, and there might be a wordplay going on there. Uh, philosophy is literally the love of wisdom. Very important way of thinking in the ancient Greek world. In fact, it's a preeminent model of approaching the world in all of Greek thought and Western thought. To this day, as we approach the world, we do so uh, through the guise of philosophy. Uh, And really, throughout its entire history, Christianity has been grappling uh, with the question of Athens or Jerusalem. Uh, How much of what we think as Christians is rooted in what has really been made known in the scriptures, and how much of it has been uh, shaped, however explicitly or implicitly, by the philosophical drive of the Greek world. Uh, and so the question has been, how much uh, philosophy can be tolerated in Christianity, or is uh, Christianity been corrupted because of all of the philosophy of men that they've come to the gospel and haven't been fully transformed? Elements is a Greek word, stoicheia. And within a century, stoicheia will have reference to spiritual natures. Uh, whether that's what Paul has in in Colossians is something that's hotly disputed. Instead, a lot of people would look at it in a more classical way. Uh, the stoichea would be the basic elements of the world. Uh, the philosophers of the time uh, figuring out if the world's made of air or fire or water, and there's a basic element, and everything else would flow from that. Godhead or data here is theotes, not theotetus. And Paul is insisting on Jesus' full divinity. He's not just kind of partaking of certain divine aspects. In fact, uh, Colossians 2 and verse 9 is the clearest statement of Paul where he affirms what we call high Christology, that absolutely he looks at Jesus as God um, and divine. Bodily is somaticos, the bodily form. And of course, that's the great mystery of the incarnation, how the fullness of deity could be confined to fit within a human body. But paul speaks of it as something that is true not just in the past but also presently that in heaven jesus is still in the body and then a bodily resurrection made full is the pleroma in greek it related to the pleroma in colossians 1:19, where we said jesus was the fullness of all things now he goes on and takes a step further uh says that um that we are um filled in him that the christians and the colossi are filled in him Uh, which is powerful. The fullness of all is in Christ. Now the fullness is also in the believers in him. Jesus is the head of our powers and principalities again. Now we look at Colossians 2, 6 and 7 as a whole. We understand this concern that Paul has for the Colossian Christians. Jesus is the head of all power. The fullness of the day dwells in him, and so Christians must be rooted and grounded in him, not persuaded to accept enhancements or alterations of the gospel according to appeals to philosophy or the perceived fundamental nature of reality. And everything else kind of flows from this. The theme he begins in verse eight continues uh, in verse eleven. Uh, he completes this association. He's talked about how in Jesus the fullness of deity dwells. You've been filled in Him. He, he is head of rule and authority. In Him you've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And he explains what that is. He talks about baptism as a circumcision. that Through baptism they put off the body of flesh in a burial to be raised up with Jesus through the faith and the working of God. Now, circumcision uh, is the removal of the skin of the foreskin of from the penis. In Genesis 17 it was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and it continued to be the sign of the covenant with Israel. Uh, Paul's already been Looking at circumcision in creative ways. In Romans chapter 2, he talks about uh, a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, really. Uh, that Gentiles who do what the law declares by nature act as if their heart is circumcised. And that, therefore, it's not really outward circumcision that matters for God. It's the inward circumcision. It uh, doesn't matter what you've done externally if you aren't changing internally to be more like what God would have us to do, have you to do. And so here, Paul associates circumcision and baptism because they're signs of the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Because baptism is a death or resurrection in Romans 6 and as well. Baptism is considered the putting on of Christ in Galatians 3.27. It's a cleansing in 1 Peter 3.21. Very important to note, Paul is not equating baptism with circumcision fully. The baptism of a child eight days or older is not justified by this parallel. But circumcision is a cutting off of a piece of the flesh. Baptism is a cutting off of life in the flesh. Less about physical life and life in sin. The way that Paul will talk about flesh, really talking about the desires to sin in Romans and Galatians and other passages. And then Paul uh, kind of recaps and then makes his point. What does it mean to be circumcised in baptism and all that well the Colossian Christians were dead in their sins and then in their uncircumcision because they were in they were still Gentiles uncircumcised in flesh but yeah. Jesus made them and by extension us alive together in him having forgiven our trespasses having blotted out the quote-unquote bond written in ordinances against us by taking it out of the way and nailing it to the cross and after despoiling the principalities and powers he triumphed over them in verses 13 through 15. And so Paul, again, is talking about this physical circumcision to make his point. Yes, the Colossian Christians were dead in their uncircumcision. They weren't going to be made alive, though, by physical circumcision. They were going to be made alive through the spiritual circumcision of baptism based in faith. The Believers are made alive through the forgiveness of sin, the elimination of that bond of ordinance against them, and the triumph over powers and principalities. These are the three things that allow the believers to be made alive again. The bond of ordinance has been a very contentious thing. A hierographon, a record of debt. And does it refer to the law of Moses? Or does it refer to a record of sin against a person? Uh, perhaps even as far back as Adam. Uh, so is it more like Ephesians 2 or more like Romans 5? Well, uh, important to kind of establish the text in context uh, you can look at it in, in terms of a debt of uh, personal sin many reasons but you see the conclusion of the matter let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival numerous sabbath these are shadowed things that come with stones belongs to christ it's really heading toward observance of jewish festivals and so what's keeping us from being bound to jewish festivals is of course the fact as paul says in ephesians 2 that that law was taken away that divider between jew and gentile that law defined the Jew contrary to the Gentile has been taken away so the bond of ordinance must absolutely at least include uh, the divisions there uh, the, the law in in, in in that sense and so absolutely that's an important point as we're gonna see in the conclusion but Jesus seen is seen as despoiling powers of principalities he parades them in triumph it's really important that word triumph in English comes from a Roman spectacle where uh, enemies would be paraded and, and their spoil would be paraded in the streets, and then the leader of the enemy would be executed in a final grand finale, and the general who defeated them would be, uh, receive all kinds of honors uh, from the people. Now, the powers of principalities might well have thought they had triumphed over Jesus when he was killed in such a humiliating way, but in God's profoundly ironic way, this is how Jesus actually is triumphing over them. And so this is how the Colossian Christians were made alive in Christ. They were spiritually circumcised in baptism. They had redemption through Jesus' death that forgave their sins. It canceled the, blood, the bond of ordinances against them and was a triumph over the powers and principalities who would enslave them. And so now he draws his conclusions and applications in 16 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and he involves Jewish customs, spiritual arrogance because of visions and confidence in what we call aesthetic practices. And so in verse 16 and 17, the premise before is concluded. that The Colossian Christians, as we said, should allow no one to judge in regard to food. Festivals or Sabbath, those are a shadow of the reality in Christ. This is consistent with Romans 14, Galatians 1 through 5 and Hebrews 7 through 9. The food and drink issues are most likely concerns about keeping kosher or any kind of food or sacrifice to idols or a general belief that any meats are compromised and and, and polluted because of pagan influences. Uh... We should also consider first Corinthians ten in this context as well. Uh, the new moon and Sabbath day are regular monthly and weekly observances in Judaism. We see it in Isaiah one thirteen. Uh Yahweh's not happy with them and the way they were observing those things. And so enlightened the Galatians and the rest of the New Testament, to act as judge would involve a Jewish Christian casting aspersions against the Colossian Christians for not observing Jewish customs. There'd be no reason from the text or context to suggest that to act as judge would involve uh, condemnation for doing it. That, that you know, you that so what's going on here, people are would perhaps look at the Colossian Christians, oh, you're not following these things, you should be following these things. It's not a, oh, you're doing these things and you shouldn't do them. Uh, very important difference there. So Jesus is the reality that these other things were the shadow of, and that also in, indicates that they shouldn't be doing these things. Uh, and that's consistent with Galatians 3, Hebrews 4 and 9. Uh, the the idea of Jesus, the fulfillment of of all these things that were in the law pointing to him. And it's a recognition that Christian practice is in fact distinct from Jewish practice. And from there, Paul continued to exhort the Colossian Christians that they should be robbed of their prize, again, be plundered, because of, quote-unquote, voluntary humility. Okay, we're going to talk about what that means. Or asceticism in the English standard. Having been puffed up by the worship of angels, not holding fast to the head, through whom all things are connected to manifest increase in God, in verses 18 and 19. Uh, Voluntary humility is what the text is literally. The idea is not an excess of humility, but the intentional uh, deprivation of certain things. That's asceticism. That's why the English standard goes asceticism, and they're right in doing that. It's a word we don't use as much anymore, but ascetic is somebody who voluntarily uh, renounces certain practices or things uh, for religious dedication. Worship here is Thraskeia. and so the, what the worship of angels is here is disputed. Some think it actually refers to people worshiping angels, uh, or by seeing angels in worship is the other opportunity, other consideration. Uh, you might respect expect a more strong denunciation of people who are actually bowing down and worshiping angels. Revelation I'm told not to do that, so it seems more consistent with the latter. Somebody has believe they have received a vision, an an ecstatic vision, maybe a heavenly scene, and and they see angels bowing down before God. And they're getting all puffed up in their head. Uh, And Paul's going to continue to explore the problems with this. But here he's showing, hey, the main problem here is that now they're making it all about what they've done. Their experiences they are not holding fast to the head. Uh, They're not trusting in Jesus. They're not growing from what he has established. And also, it's important to note, the growth comes from him and God. And so Paul concludes this section by going toward that asceticism. And he asks them why they would submit to ordinances according to the ways of men, to not handle taste or touch, if they've died to Christ, to the rudiments of the world. These things have the pretense of holiness and sanctimony, but they don't provide any value in curbing the desires of the flesh. Now, very important. Paul is himself not commanding them to t- not touch, taste, or handle. These are quotations. You should look at this in quotation marks, and many modern versions do. These are the kind of strictures to which the Colossian Christians are being tempted to uh, observe, uh, imposed by others. And notice he goes right back to his theme from eight in the beginning: that these ascetic practices are rooted in some kind of understanding of the way the world works and the rudiments of the world. In, in Christ, the Christians have died to these ideas. Will worship, uh, very little running of thelothraskeia, a form of sanctimony, do-it-yourself, self-help, idea of service, absolutely. Severity of the body, we well, might think of self-flagellation, you know, somebody whipping themselves or beating themselves, and also that there is perverse pleasure some people take in restricting or afflicting themselves. And the whole point is that these things seem like, hey, they would work great to help us in the temptations against the flesh, but Paul says they actually don't provide much value to that end. Now, the big interpretive question with this section of Colossians, and really the whole Colossian letter, is who are these? What's going on here? Who would these plunderers be? And a lot of suggestions have been made about these opponents to the Colossian Christians. Uh, it's clear a strong Jewish elements in place. Uh, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans, all of these are surrounding Colossi. Galatians is just across the mountain range from them. Uh Were written these three letters were written in whole or in part because of the Judaizer influence on churches, where Jewish Christians were trying to get Gentile Christians to observe the customs of the Law of Moses. And Colossians two eleven through seventeen is full of imagery and issues that's in Judaism: circumcision, new moon, and Sabbath. Uh, We also see a mystical and ascetic element in place: people seeing visions, uh, overemphasizing ascetic rules. And uh, it's hard to understand concerns about philosophy and stoicheia in a Greek city in the first century without any regard uh, to the long heritage of philosophy as rooted in the fundamental elements of the world in Greek thought. Now, this requires some explanation, because we think of philosophy, we tend to think of certain things we call metaphysics. Uh, why people act the way they do, why we think the way we do, uh, how we should look at the world. Um, Greek philosophy included these things, very powerfully so, but they weren't on there in a vacuum. Uh, Greek philosophers are trying to understand the nature of reality, and from understanding the nature of reality, thus understand why people should think and feel and act the way they do. And so they would start off with the rudimentary elements of the world in a very important way. And it also indicates the ground on which those philosophies stand. Well, because all things come from fire, these things are true. Well, that's only true if all things come from fire, or from air, or from water, or the ether. And... uh, on account of these things, so we have Jewish influence, a mystical ascetic influence, a, a phil- a Greek philosophical influence, going back to the rudiments of the world. Some people see Jewish mystics at work within the Church of Colossae. Some see Judaizers and what we may call proto gnostics at work. It's really hard to make one coherent picture of one group of opponents. And that is why it may seem best to understand that these are not actual opponents, but potential dangers. Because only in Colossians 2, 20 and following uh, does Paul even give the hint that these problems are actually presently in the church in Colossae. And even then, it's a rhetorical question. It could just be an exercise in logic. But we've seen in Colossians 1, 4 through 6, and 21, 23, in chapter 2, 5 through 7, that Paul has pointed out the Christians in Colossae are presently grounded in faith and... Uh, are established in the faith as they've been taught, and go regulations, go read Second Corinthians. The problems seem much more remote, even though a very real and prospect, than in those letters. A very different letter than these, two, those other two letters. So if the potential plunderers and difficulties are more abstract than real, not to diminish their difficulty but just a realization that there's a difference between a problem that's actually in front of you versus one that might be in front of you. We can understand the incoherence, quote unquote, of Paul's description. He's talking about all the dangers around them. It doesn't have to be one person. So, it can involve Jewish elements. It can involve Greek elements. It can involve mystical elements. And you might have Jews and Greeks both having mystical and ascetic elements. Uh, They don't need to be a coherent whole. So, yeah, there are Judaizing Jewish Christians who might try to plunder the Colossian Christians. There are mystics who might be Jewish, who might try to rob them of their price. It could be Gentile as well. There are those who insist on philosophies of men and seek to persuade with deceitful speech. They exist, and that's why the Colossians must be on guard against them, and they must stand firm in Jesus. So what are we supposed to take from from this text here in Colossians? Well, again, the primary purpose is to warn the Colossian Christians about the danger of those who would plunder them. The Colossians don't live in some isolated sanctuary. They're in an environment where a lot of people try to persuade them away from their hope to, in Christ to plunder them so that they would no longer have their prize in Jesus and they would go be spoiled and serve some other God. These dangers came in a lot of forms. They may dress, be dressed in insistence on Jewish custom and greater continuity with the people of God before us. Others come with mystical experiences and others insist on philosophies rooted in the way the world works. Others preach strong asceticism, suggesting true spirituality comes from renouncing worldly things. And the problem is we don't have to contextualize these concerns. You could say a lot of these same things today, because the same dangers exist today. So many of the points of context between Christians and modern secular society come from fundamental assumption of worldview. Questions about the ultimate ground of truth and wisdom, whether from what we think we perceive in the world versus what God has made known in Jesus, and if you look at the way our modern world looks at things, it's really coming like look like, like Epicureanism, uh, informed by some modern sensibilities, uh, rooted in the past uh, thousand years of reform and uh, because of that people are seeking to treat other people according to what they think is good they want to avoid pain and they're trying to enjoy life the best they can and so how they look at themselves how they look at their behavior sexual ethics virtue and the good life flow accordingly uh how would you try to demonstrate that what we have in Christ is greater than that well you've got to get back all the way to look at the fundamental fallacies and flaws of that worldview. you've got to go back to those fundamental elements of it it's it's fundamental nature uh and that's very difficult to do. And a lot of times people only come to a realization of the bankruptcy of our modern age when they are shaken by personal crisis and can't uh, deny it any further. So, just like the fundamental problems of philosophy then, so now. Also, a large percentage of the points of contact. Between Christians and those who hold to the doctrines of denominations in Christendom go back to Jewish custom and greater continuity than what uh, God called for in Jesus. You think about matters of the assembly, instrumental music, uh, Sabbath, food restrictions, clearly laity distinctions, moral versus ceremonial aspects of the law, just war theory, and things like that. How do a lot of these things get rooted? They get rooted back in Old Testament ideas, uh, not found in New Testament parallels do we have to ask how many times people put emphasis on mystical spiritual experiences and how many people have gone astray in all kinds of directions looking for some kind of mystical experience? Now, there may be times where spiritual experience in Christ can exist and they're good and productive if they're rooted in Christ as the head. Note, even Paul is not saying that all these things are inherently bad. Uh, If you have a spiritual experience in Jesus, rooted in Jesus, that's one thing. But what we see today ain't really different from what was going on in the first century. Spiritual mysticism for spiritual mysticism's sake. uh, Leading to either and or asceticism and arrogance. Both or either. And so that's the danger of plunderers robbing Christians of their prize in Christ. And so the solution is the solution Paul gave. That we need to hold firm the gospel as taught throughout the world by Paul and the apostles. We need to return and restore Christ and Christianity as made known in the New Testament. That's the way forward for us. Another important thing to get out of this is the very end of this passage. And uh, most ever, I'm sure you're familiar with the scandal uh, in Roman Catholicism of uh, priests who prayed on children, uh, the pedophilic priests. Uh, w- if you read some of the reports or read uh, those who have read the reports and have made uh, explanations... It's clear that a lot of those priests knew they had pedophilic tendencies, and that's exactly why they entered the priesthood. Now it might seem terrible that well, they're, look, they're they're just trying to easy prey, right? The, the kids are right there, uh, that's just so perverse. And some of them probably did have that mentality, and that is absolutely horrible and despicable. But most of them did it for the opposite reason; they knew what they felt. But they really believed, or really felt, and really hoped that if they renounced marriage and celibacy and joined the priesthood, that would give them the strength to overcome their tendencies. And unfortunately, as evidence shows, not a few failed in that. And this is not just to bash uh, the Roman Catholic Church and those particular individuals, uh, but pointing out that that illustration goes a long way to explain a general trend. A very seductive hope. If I just entirely renounce this or that source of temptation, that's how I'm going to overcome that temptation. But Paul calls out that kind of asceticism for what it really is in Colossians 2, 23 It's rooted in the elements of the world. It's not wise in Christ. It looks like humility, but it's really just worshiping your will, thinking I can overcome through brute strength. We're putting our trust in our own efforts. It's ultimately going to do no good. Now, Very important. What Paul says here in Colossians 2, 23-23 does not invalidate 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 13, and Galatians 5. If Christians can be celibate and dedicate themselves fully to the Lord, well and good, that uh, the way of escape is given when we suffer temptation, and if we can avoid things that might cause us to stumble, there's profit in that. But Paul is casting aspersions on the entire premise of the self-help movement. All the asceticism and discipline in the world will not automatically make you a better person it will not automatically make you more spiritually advanced instead we must put our trust in Christ and gain strength from God if we're going to endure temptation does not go away if you renounce all worldly pleasures uh, you can read the accounts of the desert fathers uh... in the third and fourth fifth centuries in Egypt and in Syria and they went and renounced everything and they're having epic battles with Satan they're saying uh... in their thoughts and in their in their little hermits so Even if you're going to go down that road, it doesn't lead to what you think it's going to lead to. Our sanctification is not to be rooted in asceticism. Our sanctification comes from God in Christ through his spirit. It's a very important distinction that we need to keep in mind. So Paul's warned the Colossians about these dangers. The plunderers who would rob them of the prize uh, hope they cherish in Christ. And so Christians must be skeptical of appeals made based on the philosophies of men, the way the world works, not according to Christ, who is the embodiment of God and who reigns over all. Christians must not be judged according to Jewish customs and practices. They're just a shadow of the substance in Christ. And he died that we would be forgiven of sin, freed from the debt of the law, and liberated from the powers and principalities. And Christians must be careful to seek refuge in mystical experiences or asceticism, for they're often appealed to independently of the Lord Jesus according to the way of the world they don't build up and they don't help in overcoming the temptations of the flesh and that is why we must be rooted and grounded in our faith in jesus in our hope of the gospel to serve him according to the will of god and be led and strengthened in his spirit again so glad that you've joined us today we hope that you've been benefited by this Uh, if you'd like to talk more about these things if you have some questions if we can be of service to the correspondence course or bible study you'd like to come meet with us get to know us a bit more please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org We're also on social media. If I can be of help personally, please reach me at my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. And please share what you've heard today with your friends and family on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.